1: Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on August 18, 2019, with longtime Fourth Way practitioner Federico Balsa. Federico Balsa is a retired Argentine high school teacher who has been a sincere and persistent practitioner for over 30 years, and is a founding member of the Seekers' Cafe website. He began his fourth-way practice through the lens of an absolutely skeptical, formatory mind, intelligentsia-worshipping personality. After 11 years of practice, he had the fourth-way equivalent of a kensho or satori, which was the point at which his skillful practice of intentional suffering really began, as he realized that his previous arrogant, self-aggrandizing views had no reliable foundation. His subsequent fourth-way practice deeply informed his work with his high school students and his own children. Federico Balsa, welcome to The Mystical Positivist.
2: Delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
3: It's great to have you, and uh, we will begin, as we usually do, with a first-time guest, by inviting you to cast your mind back to your youth and childhood, and while your mind is there, um, we invite you further to reflect on experiences from that period of your life that in retrospect, you could say, ah, this prefigured my work with spiritual practice, or this was a harbinger of something that I later, uh, followed up or developed. So, um, please tell us anything that comes up.
2: Well, ah. I- I've been thinking about this before this this morning, and um, if I really look back, I remember I, I was um, a very very devout Methodist. I, I went to to um, Sunday school every Sunday, and uh, I remember having a feeling. As I was walking towards the church for the for the Sunday school meeting, and then later on when I was uh, already a teenager, and I had a feeling that there was something far greater than what actually happened. A, a feeling of of, uh, of I couldn't put it into words, but when you're asking me to 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 use the wisdom of hindsight here, I think, and. And I do remember that I felt there was a truth behind the words and beyond the words. And then I couldn't connect with the real-life people um, that I met there who were fine and lovely persons and so on, but I, I always felt, yeah, but this, this wasn't it. This wasn't it. That, that feeling, I, I think, is what prefigured and then when i was in um when i was in as as from age 13 more or less i was very very much into uh um free will and the question of yes but but well it's the classic uh, conflict of anyone brought up in a christian church so what about good people who are not uh uh, practicing Christians or practicing uh, some good religion and so on. I mean, I'm, I'm, please bear with me, but that—that that was exactly um, how, how I was—I was trained, and I was genuinely concerned with free will. I said, but but so then what? What is our freedom? Yeah. Now, in my twenties, that led me to existentialism. And everything I read, with mainly Sartre, uh, I thought, oh, well, this man is onto something. He's onto something. So then, what is the nature of a human being? It's, is it when one chooses, is one free? Is there such a thing as freedom? And then one day I said, no, this man is not onto anything. He's proposing that nothing. Makes sense. Absolutely nothing makes sense. Uh, so then there, there's still something wrong here. There's something missing. Now, I was totally um, uh, uh, spoiled, I don't, I don't know how to say, or robotized or whatever. I was totally impervious to any possible influence of any anything that came from the Orient or from Eastern traditions or whatever, all that was uh, something that I, I totally would shut out from my mind.
0: Hmm.
2: And, and yet, I felt that there was something something central that was missing. And uh, when I came across Gurdjieff, suddenly everything fell into place. Uh, but that would be another paragraph.
1: Yeah, I, I, well, I'm interested in uh, how you came across, Gurjeev, because in, in some of the uh, biographical notes that you described, it wasn't a, what you might say, a direct magnetic recognition. It seemed like there was a process. And that's a little bit different than what I hear from uh, uh, other students of the work. So I'm interested for you to tell that story and how, in a sense, you, you got, as it were, magnetized partly by your wife's interest. Well,
2: um, <clears throat> I always uh, claim that uh, Gurdjieff designed his work for a man like myself, for the man in the street, for your average orthodox um, materialist Hmm.
0: uh,
2: no-nonsense hyper-rationalist who is struggling day in, day out to cover up all the contradictions he may have and uh, but uh, sort of uh, develops an optimistic uh, vision of himself and yet, feels there's something missing, but he's not sure what. And uh, and so, um, my wife came across the psychology of man's possible evolution. And uh, well, I respected her 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 intelligence, her superior intelligence. I always uh, used to brag that she was. Uh, she was the bright one, and I was the smart one who uh, charmed uh, the bright one into uh, marrying him. And um, so then, if she was so interested, then it was worth my while to look at it. But as I have m- mentioned to you at some other time, to be frank, I was um, I had a rather high opinion of myself at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I. Uh, I considered myself uh, uh, sophisticated and enlightened and uh, intellectual, like my circle of intellectual and artistic friends. And and that basically we all felt that we were it, that we, we, we had all existence figured out and nothing was, was going to surprise us. Plus I was an excellent father, as all good Methodists are, and <laughs> husband, and I... I uh, I had progressive political views. I supported all the right causes. Uh, so, uh, okay, this was just one more uh, button on my, on my jacket, right? And uh, I wasn't so impressed. My wife, she had a mind blast. She found something that really uh, was the beginning of what of uh, She said, this is the truth. I wasn't very impressed because uh, I mean, being so intellectual and so important and so uh, so bright and so on and so in love with myself, uh, I, I said, "Okay, this is interesting."
3: Let me let me just stop you there. Let me just stop you there and ask, um, because I think this is a very common um, response to encountering the fourth way that you're that you're describing, perhaps not in in all the specifics. Uh, especially the detail about your wife. But, um, but nevertheless, I'm intrigued to know how you configured the fourth way when your wife pointed it out to you in terms of the other ways that you regarded your understanding at that time. Did you think it, it was you, – you described it as a button that you put on your jacket and um i'm ashamed th- to confess it but that was me it's it's part of my history and i cannot oh, deny oh it. I, there's, there's no shame but um but but i'm just i'm intrigued by this um because i think a lot of people do when they encounter whatever spiritual tradition it happens to be that comes to be meaningful to them over time uh, there's often a sloganeering kind of response Mm-hmm. And, um, and a button implies a slogan. On yes, a button. absolutely. So I'm wondering how, how that landed for you, how you configured it, and how long you sat with that sloganized response.
2: Well, um, the um, Gujiv work was brought to Buenos Aires by... Carlos Machelajovic. Actually, his name wasn't Carlos because he was Russian, but we all knew him as Carlos. And his wife, Daphne Ripman. And they had both been in Mendham at the farm uh, and group meeting center and movement center um, set up by the Ospenskys in New Jersey, I believe it was and uh, Daphne Ripman had been a direct student of Jasmine Haworth who was one of the the main teachers of the movement at that time so when they settled in buenos aires in the 1960s they opened a bookstore and uh, very soon started delivering lectures on the fourth way and after a time that that became the bookstore became a venue for group meetings and for movements now i met carlos at the urging of my wife in 1981 uh yeah end of 1981 and again i was uh, significantly impressed but uh, not i had i had n- no real capacity to perceive uh, what i later felt about him and i thought okay this seems like a an interesting thing to do i i always say that at that time for me the mountains were still the mountains and between 1990 um 81 until 1993 so we're talking about 11 years here if you were take a year um I considered that just because I was a member of a Gurdjieff group, that guaranteed it was proof that I was not part of the mass of mechanical uh, humanity. And uh, all I had to do was, okay, I, I wasn't foolish enough to consider myself enlightened yet, but I figured that if I attended meetings punctually, struggled with the uh, movements in spite of my difficulties and went to as many retreats as possible, sooner or later I would be able to sit up front with the more advanced uh, members and be able to lord it over the others and tell them what I thought about their experiences and give them advice and answer their questions. Now, that lasted until 1993. 1993 the group was split, as often happens in, in Gujief groups. And there began a time when the mountains were no longer the mountains, as I then say, and I began to suffer shocks that shook my very foundations. Uh these came gradually but gradually does not mean gently. There were... Uh, suddenly I would find myself caught up in a whirlwind of agony and despair. And, uh, and um, I hadn't bargained for this. I wanted to feel better, not worse. I had figured that, yes, I knew there were parts about my personality that I didn't like... So I figured that this was uh, uh, a teaching that I could manipulate, keep all the good parts, which are most of them, of course, and just uh, get rid of the the, the undesirable parts. Uh, and uh, but it, uh, I was swept off my feet there, and uh, uh, I emerged in 2011 from that constant. Um, trial let us say and then I say that as from 2011 now the mountains are the mountains again so uh, yes I am back to being um, a good uh, good husband excellent father now also grandfather um, oh by the way a very important uh, factor that gave me uh, such a high opinion of myself is that I considered myself a hero when I was in my 30s, because I had dropped out of law in order to become a teacher. What higher calling can one have? Hmm. And for many years, I thought, no, they're trying to tell me that I shouldn't be a teacher. I mean, everything they said at a higher and more complex level I decodified or decoded—I I, I don't know which of the two words is—but at my level of understanding, I said, "What? What? They're driving me crazy! What are they telling me that I that it's not okay to be a teacher?" Now, what they were telling me was that it was not okay to be identified with being a teacher and feeling noble about it.
0: Mm.
2: But but it it took me about twenty years to understand the meaning of the word identified. <sighs>
1: So um, uh, I, 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 To yes, wrap please. it up, to, yeah. to
2: conclude, um, I am still a dedicated uh, and uh, committed mm. and enthusiastic retired teacher now, but I am still in contact. And uh, the, what changed was one thing that I was sorely lacking, which was I, I always felt that I did not have the capacity to feel. To have a depth of authentic feeling, and uh, everything was like sort of phony. That's a perfect a word I learned uh, reading um, Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> it's I, it's a word that has no translation because it's not false. It's not hypocritical. No, it's phony, and and. As you may imagine, it's fun to read about phonies. It's agony to realize you're a phony and can't stop being a phony. <laughs> I mean, laughing at jokes that you don't feel you like. Oh, well, you know, you're Americans. You know the meaning of the word phony, so I don't. But it, it's it, it's uh, so hard to explain the concept to someone from another culture. And so uh, I don't. I I feel. I have authentic feeling now and I don't have a a high opinion of the person I used to call myself. And then another thing I learned that I would share with uh, people of my same persuasion or profile, uh, I'm talking of, uh, you know, people who see themselves as I saw myself when I was in, in my 30s is that uh, if you submit yourself to the conditions that Mr. Guruji foresaw for people exactly like us, the work works in you and with you and on you. All you need to do is remove obstacles and give it a chance. Hmm. And one of the things that kept me hooked through all of the difficulties and all the temptations to just say, nah, is, um, Gurdjieff says, never accept anything that you have not tested for yourself. Not even anything that I tell you. And that was the ultimate scientific method uh, for me. And then another thing, which is... um, I think then this, the is on another paragraph is that it was about freedom. Gujif says, we have a way of thinking that makes it impossible for us to make free choices. And I'm going to teach you a way of thinking, a method and specific exercises that you can, uh, Evaluate step by step, and you will see that you will be able to
1: think. So I'd like to go back uh, a little bit to this uh, question that you, or the image that you created of how the work you felt was designed for someone just like you. Yeah. And that's interesting to me because when I look at the history of the Gurdjieff work and its introduction into Europe, it seemed like the sort of person you were describing yourself to be was the prototypical European in the early 20th century. I mean, uh, very, yeah. very European intellectual. Yeah, European intellectual, the inheritor of uh, kind of a, an intellectual tradition that seemed to be on top of the world. Uh, yep, great certainty of the ideas, and that the but that there was this nagging feeling of incompleteness that you would do everything in your power to kind of cover over or deny to yourself and that the work could act like a hook for that Mm -hmm. and yet it's interesting that um, you also described that for yourself that you weren't even that was not enough of a hook except by the influence of your wife Exactly. That that because basically because of the uh, I, your emotional connection with her, something else could there was a different path for the uh, work to seep in, as it were. Uh, had had you not had that influence, do you feel like the work would have just passed you by? Absolutely, it would have passed me by.
2: I mean, so, uh, that is what I call at the risk of uh, sounding corny. <clears throat> um that's the power of love yeah you meet someone that has an impact on you an influence on you and i do know that in other domains she because she has told me this she feels that i have uh, uh enriched her but uh in this aspect, I followed her, and I trusted that there had to be something good about that if she was doing it. Plus, being the good Methodist one always is at heart, once a Methodist, always a Methodist, it was good for the kids. The yeah, kids had yeah. to see that both their parents went to the same church. For me, Uh, and now that I I had never formulated this before, but you're you're bringing out stuff that I'm not sure I want to bring out, but it's out (laughs) already. It's exactly, that is, I could no longer follow, for reasons I cannot explain, but I I could no longer follow um, the Methodist church. But I found this was like a a good church. The kids learned, they came to the retreats with us, and they learned... uh, meditation and they and uh, they saw us studying the ideas and so on and so forth so then it was a very superficial reason but that's i think it's the magic the wonder of the fourth wave
1: well uh, i want to this is actually really interesting because um the when you describe that first 10-year period as wearing the badge um in a way you could also describe it as relating to the work as like going to church.
2: Yeah, you're right.
1: Same thing. I, and I mean, we see this in other traditions in our, in uh, our neck of the woods where we see Buddhists now relating to Buddhism.
3: As, as, as if they were Protestant churches.
1: Right. As if they're going that to means. church. Yeah. You know, you, you go, you know, you go have your, you know, Sunday sit, you do retreats periodically. No doubt meditation has a beneficial effect, but their relationship to it is as a sort of a piece of their life as opposed to something that swallows up their life.
2: Yeah. Well, look, as we speak, we are uh, we have a, our Sunday work with a group of, uh, we're six of us. It's my wife and, and myself. And my wife uh, and there's a a married couple who was in the same groups we used to be for 20 years. And my sister-in-law and uh, a lady who's in her late 50s, who also used to be in another uh, group we belonged to and and then was disconnected for 20 years. And they all, including myself, asked Ines, that's my wife, why don't you start a group with us? And so um, she did. And uh, so we do uh, movements in our living room, which, thank God, is large enough for that. It's a very modest house, but it's large. And uh, we do uh, we, uh, everything, whatever. I mean, we do the whole matrix of our, of our Guruji group, which includes a day of practical work. So there were, right now, we were all working in the garden, and then we stop and we have the bells and so on. And, um, and for almost two years now, we've been uh, following the, um, the syllabus. I don't know if you're familiar with the syllabus, the above syllabus? No, I'm not. Well, this, this was given to us by Greg Loy. That actually, at an All and Everything conference, Greg Loy gave it to my wife. And it's a syllabus for the reading of the tales in 81 weeks.
3: Oh, I have heard of this. Yes. You've heard of it. Yes. So
2: then, because Gurdjieff himself says <clears throat> that his uh, works should be read three times.
3: Right.
2: Right. The first time as, as, as well, he gives three levels of, of uh, depth, but he says that it has to be read three times. So then instead of reading the whole book through three times, on week one, you read a given number of pages on your own then you read it aloud with a group of friends or whoever and then you read it again on your own um, but on that after that third reading you do your first reading of the next batch which you will also and so on and that is uh, and what we all do is we juggle you can imagine what a if if you have in your mind the image of an italian family on um on sundays then you'll understand what an Ital- what an argentine sunday is like it's you uh, an argentine is like an italian who speaks spanish if you if you want when <laughs> i was when i taught high school out of 25 students you had maybe 7 Spanish surnames, a, a sprinkling of uh, other nationalities and, and 15 Italian surnames, right? Mm. And so then, but we all manage our our diplomacy to make sure that every other Sunday we meet.
0: Mm. We
2: have, uh, all of us but one have a, 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 a bit of movements and a group me- meeting. And then there's one who said, no, no, I'm tired all those years of uh, commitment with the groups. I I want to be in the readings with you, but I don't want to be in the groups. Fine, no problem. And so then when he comes, we do the reading. And then in true Gurdjieffan tradition, we have dinner together with no shortage of wine. And uh, then we have uh, toast, which is part essential part of the Gurdjieff tradition, And with liquors afterwards and so on. And so then it is uh, a bit like, I keep going back to my roots, but it's a bit like if there are two uh, gathered in my name, there I will be. And uh, what we find is that uh, once you've received that matrix of of, uh, what a good life is, a life of inquiry, a life of working with others uh, 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 of ruthlessly examining your what we used to call at church your sins and uh, uh Gurdjieff calls it your mechanicity uh, which curiously um over the last few years i've come up over and over again with the true meaning of repentance because the standard uh, is repent your, your sins, feel guilty for them, and promise you're never going to do them again.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: the origin, you, maybe you already know this, but it's been new to me, in Greek, it's metanoia. Yes. Metanoia does not mean feel guilty. It means change your way of thinking,
0: hmm.
3: which right. is
2: exactly what uh, the Gurdjieff system does. Yeah.
3: Got it. So let me go back to um, the whole um, the, the, the ways in which we um come into uh the work. And one of the things I wanted to focus on was this feature that you were describing for yourself, which is the idea that uh basically not just that I'm already God's gift uh, to humanity, <laughs> but, but that in fact, the work is going to make me even more God's gift to hey, humanity. Exactly. And I, and I, and I, I see that, I don't think this is exclusive to the Gurdjieff work. Uh, I think that, that a lot of people use, uh, new religious or spiritual impulses and, uh, practices to reify that this part of the ego that mm-hmm. that um, that wants to insist on our marvelous contribution already as we are exactly. so i so, 'm um, wondering though how how this lands because you you mentioned that your kids would go with you yes. to to various activities etc, so they are approaching it from a different place. Um, it seems to me, or, or they're receiving impression food about it from a different time in life, certainly.
0: Mm-hmm. And also
3: with a, with a less developed um, sense of ego, presumably Absolutely. than adults. Absolutely. So I'm wondering if you can talk, talk about how you observed, how your kids responded to um, the of work and this and and whether they fell into the trap of superiority as readily well
2: um our youngest son who is now 29 started going to retreats when he was 3 hmm. and um the um, eldest son who is uh, 39 was uh, in his he was 12 or 13 when we started going to the Mm retreats and there were work days at the at at the house we we rented for the group and uh, what they did was um fortunately for them they grew up with a father who saw that Intellect was not the road to anything. Okay. Um, and I was brought up on the religion of what uh, Persig, if you remember, in the the art of
3: motorcycle maintenance.
2: Exactly. When he, what he describes as the Church of Reason. Mm. And uh, I was definitely brought up on the Church of Reason. Uh, but not my kids. Hmm. So then they grew up seeing the value. Uh, excuse me. Uh, can I uh, pause sure. a minute? Yeah, sure. It's in the in the living room. Oh, very, very <laughs> My wife uh, <laughs> asked me where the tails are because the tails are now. You no, certainly I don't,
3: don't like want, want to lose them.
2: <laughs> and and uh, and they're all uh routine for me cause they were, oh, were <laughs> very happy that this was happening and i uh, when I accepted this date, I didn't know we were having this um, not even my wife knew we were having this practical
0: yeah.
2: but it's all day today, so then uh, they'll fill me up so sorry, and so my kids um uh, the, the group leader we had was always very clear about the idea that the kids were not in the group, but they were subjected to all the practical work and they did readings that were uh, tending towards um, a spiritual awakening of different traditions. Hmm. And uh, what that is my father was not a university graduate, actually, he had only a primary school education and so then all his ambition was for me to to be a successful lawyer who would defend uh, good causes, not just not to be rich but who would uh, at the same time be be prosperous and um, And so then my battle was. Wow! I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a teacher. Is what I want to be, but then that became a fetish. Uh, it became a a badge of honor again, right? Wow! Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm a teacher, right? And which is very common in the profession, also, right? And so then I talk to the to to the bring stories about talking to the parents. Look at these bourgeois. Uh, they care about money i'm uh, i teach the future blah
3: and um, no, no, ascribing nobility uh, to one's uh career is not a is, is a widespread uh, it is
2: okay but if you're an investment banker i don't see how you manage to well i am sure they do they say well, we have oh, yes, to economy. They do. well yeah
1: because they they measure uh, nobility in terms of dollars <laughs> Well
2: anyway um what actually happened was <coughs> this was a bit of the old fashioned uh, approach um they it was in, it it was in, out of the question for them whether to participate or not in uh, activities because i enforced it as if it were a, a church but such was the power of the ideas and such was the freedom that it instilled that uh, they never saw it as an oppression, right? They just said, I I used to use a trick with them, I said, look, at school we have several families of Slovenian kids, and, and on Saturdays they go to Slovenian school, so they do Spanish-English, because it was a bilingual Spanish-English school, plus Saturdays they go to Slovenian school, and they learn Slovenia. Okay, well, we're like them, only what we do is Gurdjieff. So then, end of story. And occasionally, when there was a very important uh, birthday party, which in Argentina is a, a big, big deal, then we would make an exception, okay, you can stay if, if it coincided with a, with a retreat. So then, over the years, they became increasingly committed. So much so that our eldest son, for the last... Uh, I don't know about five, six years already. He lives on a farm in Uruguay with another 20, 30 people, which is Agujif community that, hmm. was set up, that, that we set up several years ago. Wow. And, um, and he's a movement teacher <clears throat> there. And uh, all of the elder generation left. When the group leader died, he died prematurely at sixty-nine or seventy of cancer. But he left all everything organized for the young people to be in charge of the foundation there and and, and the farm that we all bought and so on. So then we, if when we go, we go as guests, and uh, and that's that's cool. We're friendly, um, but. Our son has uh, devoted his life to the work. Hmm. And um, it was always combining. Something that helps us in Argentina is that you are not forced to do full-time college. Hmm. You can do part-time. And it's free. Well, by the state. So then if you have to have group meetings on a Wednesday evening and movements on Friday, you can do it.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, whereas former students of mine who are uh, studying at college in the States, they can't, there's no way they can escape. So then in those precious formative years, they, um, they are exposed to uh, the same influences that, that I was before I joined the group. So then that, uh, and the younger son now, the one who's 28, he plays the piano in the movement uh, here in Buenos Aires. And he he is very close to his brother too. And um, they have movements for the children and there. We visit them once a month and so on. And, uh, but they have a, no, I mean, they take it very naturally and they don't feel special about it. They just feel that they've received a way of looking at life that they have to transmit, right?
1: Mm-hmm. That it makes. It, I don't
2: know if, if if this answers your question. It, oh, it absolutely it does, does. It does.
1: And I have a, a related question that was coming up before you started this. This is a very interesting um, uh, excursion, and that's as a as a teacher as an educator who's seen multiple generations of students come through. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, we talked about earlier how when the work presented itself to you, it was like perfectly tuned for the intellectual, uh, of high self-importance that you were, um, does the, do you see that the work as it's configured now, um, for someone who's not raised in it organically like your children were, but someone who's meeting it from the outside, does it is it configured in a way that will touch people of the modern generation in the same way? And I reason, partly I asked this because I've heard stories from some of the other members of the seekers cafe about attempts to uh, invite young people into the work, at least in America. And uh, with, and that was met with less than uh, great success. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm wondering whether uh, in its in its uh, traditional configuration, does the work speak, to the psychology of people today and if you and i don't i don't have a an opinion on this i'm just more interested in how you see that question given your perspective as uh, someone who's come into contact with a lot of young people
2: sure well i can give you uh one experience i had which was um i was a debate <laughs> coach and public speaking coach at the school
0: mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I particularly encourage kids who were not um, of the brighter performance to feel they could join us because we, we, we want, I mean, it, 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 you don't need an IQ measured by uh, memory, uh, logic, and uh, verbal skills to have a, a view that would be enriching on uh, what should we do about nationalizing uh, railways or not nationalizing railways, or uh, what is the concept? Um, is it fair to have kids wear a uniform? or oh, this was a very upmarket school, so then they all wore these uniforms. And why don't the teachers have to, and so on, and all the things that open up. When he was in his last year, he said, Sir, where do you get all those ideas from? And at the time, I was terrified, because was, probably this doesn't happen in the States, but here, anything that, that is connected with some alternative thing is considered by the parents, particularly the more affluent parents, as dangerous as a cult. Or, and I was terrified of anyone suspecting. I said, look, I'll tell you, uh, in a couple of years. For now, read Zen. <laughs> but you're not a Zen practitioner. No, I'm not. But I'm not going to tell you what I am because I don't want your parents thinking I'm trying to influence you. So we read Zen for for two years. And then I gave him. Uh, well, I didn't give him the book because I uh, we have this this practice that the, the person has to get the book for himself and so on. That was before PDFs, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, I still would not uh, let him join the any group. I said, you've got to be supporting yourself before that. He had the money to do this, so he went to the Priore to, <laughs> and he went to visit uh, Guruji's uh, uh, grave before he had uh, been in. And finally, but he saw there was something there. There was a fire there and a source of new ways of looking at things that he couldn't... Uh, Put his finger on In a way he, Maybe he was a, a clone of myself That was one one thing right? And I think the key is We need to catch them young Before they get into college I think that my fellow seekers Have the problem that they try to Reach out to young people But these young people Have already been uh, conditioned They've already been reached out to By Another philosophy of life by a um well uh, a non spiritual philosophy of life right they need to get through college get a degree uh and so on and so forth that that was my neck and, and but on the side of the yarn the the group that is run by my by a young man and uh, supported by my son and someone else what they do is they uh they present um they have a music group that plays a gujif music and, and other traditions and they present that and then they do a movement exhibition and then a talk on the ideas and they get uh, young people in droves, they get mm. about, I don't know, I think they've added, in the last couple of years, they've added about 40 people or something like that. Well, yeah. I think that, that the thing is, the young attract the young.
0: Mm-hmm. And those
2: who are not young, we repel the young because this is a culture that glorifies youth per se and that disparages age. And, um, uh, I don't know, that's as far as I
0: get. Yeah,
1: well, I, I I appreciate that. I I mean, I'm reflecting on the degree to which uh, things may be different in the Argentinian culture than, say, the American culture, when I mm-hmm. consider this. I see today a much greater distrust of hierarchy and authority. hmm I don't know to what extent that penetrates quite so deeply, but is it certainly uh, uh, in the uh, United States, there seems to be a, a moment where authorities of any form are kind of being deconstructed, uh, yeah. both, both for uh, good and for uh, uh, bad. And so there's a kind of a resistance to any presentation of uh, a set of ideas as authoritative. So when things are presented in that way, I don't think that they uh, uh, catch. The way that you're describing actually seems a little more natural where, hey, here are these interesting people doing interesting things and I want to find out more about what they're doing.
0: Exactly.
3: Exactly.
2: I think, but that's how we taught it to them. I mean, that's how we taught it to our kids also. But that, but
3: that, but that's the, that's the key thing, and also the attitude that you pointed out earlier, which is central to the Gurdjieff work about verifying for yourself
0: mm-hmm. and not
3: relying on authority of any kind, um, and that's that's something that I think can resonate with people. And yet, I, I think you have a, an interesting point. Or at least it seems to me you're making an interesting point that. Um, after a certain amount of time spent creating an education that leads to a career that makes a lot of money here in the States, then there's not the openness perhaps. Whereas this, I I was intrigued by your comments about the education that your um, sons were receiving, Mm
0: -hmm.
3: which um, not only did not um, as you as you described it, at least, not only didn't um, enforce Gurdjieff ideas on these kids, but it actually, by demonstration, showed them that there's value in all kinds of different spiritual paths. At least that's mm-hmm. what I thought I Absolutely. understood you to say. Absolutely. And that's and that's and and that is a um, a key factor, it seems to me, in allowing kids the freedom to explore for themselves.
2: Right, right. Well, the, um, this, uh, my, my eldest son, for example, whilst continuing to be a member of the group and attending uh, meetings and so on, he left home when he was 21 and started a business of his own, uh, language training and company.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, first as a teacher, and then he started it on his own. Then he went he won a scholarship of 10 days in new york for young entrepreneurs <laughs> and he came back uh totally uh enthusiastic with uh with uh, the market economy and so on and he enrolled in law and after one year in law um he said i don't want to be a lawyer so he enrolled in a Arts, uh, uh, a career that, is, uh, that leads up to being an art critic. But after that year, he said, I don't want to be an art critic. No. Um, so then he enrolled for one year in piano.
0: <clears throat>
2: He's been studying since he was a kid. But there's no, he was accepting the conservative. Said, I don't want to be a piano. This is not me. So then he enrolled in teacher's training college.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Did a year. Brilliant uh, grades said, I don't want to be a teacher. And finally, he enrolled in education. Here we call it sciences of education or education science. And there he found it because he said, I am going to start a school one day based on the principles of Guruji. Sure. So he has a master's degree in education from the University of Buenos Aires. But then he moved to, to, to Uruguay, to the farm, and he wanted to start the school in the farm. And they said, no, in Uruguay, first you have to be a primary uh, school teacher in order to be able to have your own school. So that's what he did. So for for four years, he he studied. And he used to say, Dad, I'm studying with the books that my teachers used to write at at university, I mean, the, the authors of the books are the same one, and um, and finally, with the the support of the group and so mm-hmm. on, uh, they built a, a school, a one room school, uh, with um, um I think the guy was ma- mainly mainly YouTube instructions, and cause none of them was a constructor. I, I was part of it. I mixed cement and so on. And now he has a school, and he is in the second year of the Montessori system. He he is doing the distance training with the North American Montessori Center
0: mm-hmm. in
2: Canada, I think they are. And uh, he's beginning to open up into the into the greater community in in uh, in that area of, of Uruguay. So then. What actually happened then was that he, there was a, a, a conjunction of acting in the world and uh, uh, bringing the work, but not in the evangelical way of, of mm-hmm. we need to get more people to come. <clears> the <throat> <And my throat> younger son, the one who's uh, 28, um, he's uh, became a freelance translator and now uh, he's he graduated as a shiatsu therapist and he's going to start osteop- os- osteopathy. We say osteopathy, uh, uh, mm. correct my pronunciation. Osteopathy is correct?
3: Uh, probably either osteology or osteopathy.
2: Probably exactly. osteopathy. So, is what you said. And um, But then again, he never had, both, neither of them, as you can see, had this sentimental uh, uh, pension for, oh, I want to find the vocation of my life because that's going to make me justify my existence. No, they already mm. mm.
0: knew like that
2: what their existence, what enriched their existence was the movements and working on and your inner work, and that's it. Uh, I mean, that, that nothing can compete with that in, in their book.
1: So, not, so nothing external was going to... Uh, they, they didn't have that problem that uh, no. so many of us in a, uh, certainly Western society has of trying to find something outside of ourselves that's going exactly. to complete us. Yeah,
2: Exactly. But at the same time, they did not have this thing that many traditions have that you have to isolate yourself because that's why it's called the fourth way.
0: That mm-hmm. is,
2: people must not suspect anything of what you're doing but at the same time gurujeev is very clear on this you have to be able to earn your living with your left foot so you need to cut corners and find intelligent ways so that earning your living does not absorb all of your energies which i connect with jacob needleman he if i if i were to mention someone who really gave me a a boost that would be jacob needleman in in um money and the meaning of life
0: mm-hmm.
2: when he says that uh, he, he describes the u.s um you probably realize this most of my american friends get very embarrassed when i remind them but you are <laughs> the center of the world for us you are rome we all our eyes are on you and uh, we grew up on on i don't know all the i like people who the martians mm-hmm. who are watching earthlings from Mars the, the influence is, uh, is uh, it's uncanny
0: yeah. so then
2: but maybe the time has come for us to be able to feed another culture
1: as well
3: I, I am definitely picking I'm definitely picking that up from what you're saying yeah we need to take
1: a short break at the hour you are listening to the mystical positivist I'm your host Stuart Goodnick joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt this week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on August 18, 2019, with longtime Fourth Way practitioner Federico Balsa. Federico Balsa is a retired Argentine high school teacher who has been a sincere and persistent practitioner for over 30 years
0: and is a founding
1: member of the Seekers Cafe website. We'll be right back.
0: Back to the mystical positivist. I'm your host,
1: Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center, and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. In this hour, we continue our pre-recorded Zoom conversation with longtime Fourth Way practitioner Federico Balsa. Federico Balsa is a retired Argentine high school teacher who has been a sincere and persistent practitioner for over 30 years and is a founding member of the Seekers Cafe website. But
2: maybe the time has come for us to be able to feed another culture as well.
3: I, I am definitely picking, I'm definitely picking that up from what you're saying.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's, it's as, as a, well, in my case, My mother was American, and all her side of the family are American. Wesley's, and they are descendants of John Wesley.
3: Really? No wonder you're a Methodist.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I had even considered being a... And my my grandfather came as a a missionary here,
0: Hmm. and
2: uh, so much so that when, when I married my wife, who came from a Catholic family, we were not in the work yet, I was 26, he was 21. So we married in an ecumenical ceremony
0: Hmm. uh,
2: with a priest and a Methodist minister jointly. And all we needed to do was to promise to bring up our children in the teachings of Christ, which Ah. did not commit you to Methodism. We did because uh, Guruji is esoteric Christianity by definition. So then we, we have still kept our vows. Well, my mother was not well at that time yet. She, she, was a, she had times of lucidity and times of, of non-lucidity. And at one point she said, What are we doing here? What are we doing here in the Catholic Church? So she started speaking to me as if I, had, I were her father. And she said, We should never have come here. I mean, these people, we should have gone to China where there were no Christians. These people were Catholics. In their own way, they are also Christians. (laughs) (laughs) I I was so patronizing, wasn't it? (laughs) Uh, But what I'm trying to say here is that um, I can understand a lot about what it is to be an American, because if you had an American mother and you went to to the American school, I I went to the American school here in Buenos Aires on a scholarship. But at the same time, if you ask me, I'm Argentine. But all my life, Argentines never accepted me as being Argentine, because they said, nah, you're a Yankee, you're a Yankee, and so on. Really? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Well, anyway. But I think maybe that cross-culture had a lot to do with neither of the philosophies or outlooks on life taking hold of me. But I have a very strong uh, conviction that Gurdjieff chose America, um, the United States. He chose that country to be the foundation of his work. And I think that, um, I'll tell you how I connected the work with my teaching uh, profession. Mm -hmm. I noticed that what was wrong with the system was the grading, which is competitive.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: You're struggling there to get your your name with a prestigious number next to it. So what I would do was, and as I grew older uh, and more expensive to fire, because the older you are in the archangelist system, the more expensive it is to fire you because of seniority. Mm -hmm. And, having established a a reputation as eccentric and, but I still could coach the kids to win competitions, but I tell the kids, you work, you pass. I don't care if you understand the subject. I don't care if you learn the subject. I only care if you work. I see you work. I'll give you your pass mark. You flunk a test. No problem. You'll make it up with uh, research work or whatever i can't promise you wow, a while great, but you're you 're going to be out of toll with you and forget about the international exams they don't matter. all those Cambridge exams, college admission exams, they say they don't matter at all. they have nothing to do with your culture. so every couple of years, when they they 'd have a headmasters who came over from England and on three or five year contracts, i 'd get <coughs> called into the office. Mr. Massa, the kids are saying that you are saying that the international exams are not uh, important. That must be a mistake. No, it's not. I tell them that that's the way it is. Because if you want a kid to succeed, the first thing you have to tell him is that it's okay for him not to.
0: Exactly. And, um,
2: And so, well, they couldn't. Okay, Uh, yeah, yeah, but watch your step. I I didn't watch my step. And and even the kids who were trouble for everyone else, they'd work like mad with me. They'd be happy to work because they knew that they had... Then one of them, he wrote a history exam that was absolute nonsense. Everything he wrote was... You couldn't even make it. But at the end, he says, but what I don't understand is why they didn't kill Napoleon, why they didn't execute Napoleon. They exiled him. He died alone on a remote island, but they could have so easily have killed him. Now, when I finish school, I'm going to try to find out why they never killed him. I gave him uh, the, the equivalent of a, a B plus for that test. Another teacher would say, but you're, you're being softer. I'm, no, no. I said, that kid has understood, has been able to think about history. Now, I was able to do this because <laughs> it sounds horrible, but because I was in a Gurjiv group, so I, I got shaken up all the time. I couldn't just go, go along with a system that was insane and then go to my group meeting and say, yeah, yeah, I know I'm within a system that is insane, but what can I do? Because you always, can always do something. Well, you can't change everything, but you can do something. That started me with um, the idea that, ah, if I want the kids to think, then there's more chance that they'll break out of the matrix, well, if you remember. And so then, uh, to make a long story a bit shorter... Because, you know, teachers, we start talking about shop and, and I mean, <laughs> we we'll start yawning. Two hours
1: will go by in a second.
2: Yeah. Um, but basically, my aim was to bring debate to Argentine public schools, Argentine state schools. Because it's existed for over a couple of uh, decades in upmarket bilingual schools. I see. But the virus never migrated to the body politic of the state schools, or the, the sons of the taxi drivers and of the uh, cashiers at the, at the banks mm-hmm. and the, 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 the working middle class, let's mm-hmm. say, and the working class. Although I know that's not a word that Americans like, the word class, but anyway. Uh, Doesn't bother me. <laughs> but anyway, um, And the experience, I was able to do it, not belonging to the circle, because the minister of education of the city happened to be a former student of mine, a high school student of mine. And he said, well, I know you don't vote for us, but I want the kids to have a debate like you taught me debate, but I want it in the state schools. So I plunged for three years into the most conflictive uh, public schools where kids were you know militantly ideological and uh, mm. wearing the che Guevara t-shirts and
0: uh,
2: mm. um, occupying the school and <coughs> protest for this for and whatever and so on and i told them look i they have me meet with the students student council to see if they were going to let me in or not and I said look for 25 years I've only taught debate to the kids of the rich but I'm not rich and I want to teach you because most of you are not rich that's why I'm not part of the government but they think it looks good for them to send me in so then it's for you to benefit if you want to get them out of power then learn how to debate what happened was that most of the kids who enrolled in the program were uh, underachievers academically, but incredibly gifted in creative thinking. And they had never been given a chance to to do anything prestigious. And now they were struggling to be on the debate team. And one girl, one um, debate motion was uh, the patriarchal system no longer holds Uh, men are not granted the authority that they used to be and that is quite regrettable so the teams had on the first hour of debate they had to defend the motion but the Mm -hmm. same team on the second hour of debate had to oppose the motion right and then one girl which you can imagine the profile of girl I'm, i'm saying here would say you know When I was defending the traditional model even though I'm not going to believe it of course but there was something about being feminine that reminded me as I was speaking of my grandmother and I wanted to be like her also. We don't need to be using swear words like the boys who are all brutes. We can be free and be feminine. And then Already at the American school, where I went back as a teacher, I had one boy who was from a very, very, uh, you know, they are expats who work in Buenos Aires, but they're Americans. And he said he had to defend, it was a national resolution in the states at the time that the federal government should significantly increase aid for the homeless. Uh, We're talking 1990 here.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And he came up with a plan that if he taxed, he, if he taxed the top two percent of the <laughs> of the population with a one percent additional, he could finance fifty thousand centers in the U.S. for homeless and so on and so forth. And he was going to use the FBI to check on them to to make sure that they they paid and they didn't they didn't uh, use. Uh, Uh, Offshore schemes and Mm -hmm. so on, but then he said, "Mr. Bassa, you told us—you never told us whether you supported the Democrats or the Republicans." But I think you must be a liberal because you got me to argue against my own father, and I don't know—I don't know what to do because (laughs) I won the 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 debate. And we used to go to other countries too, where there are also American schools. You know, Americans want to help everyone all over the world, so where they go, they they help you put putting up their companies and then, then the schools for the...
1: Modern missionaries.
2: Exactly. Um, no, but very often they are much better employers than the locals, I must tell you. If you ask an Argentine, mm. what do you want to work for, another Argentine or for an American company, you'd probably say, choose a second, because they have to stick to the law, right? Well, oh, anyway, that's another carol fish. And I told them, look, I'm never going to tell you whether my heart is with the Democrats or the Republicans. But what I can tell you is this. You're not going to become a Democrat or liberal or whatever you call them. You're just going to agree on one point of their platform. But you're going to keep your identity. The same identity your your father taught you to. Oh, you're right, says he. And another girl who was Swedish and... Predictably, of the liberal uh, um, uh, persuasion, um, in the middle of a debate, I think the debate was on on, uh, on uh, college date rape, which was a big thing at the time. The American kid who was arguing against her said, "Well, we know that this uh, my opponent comes from a country where which is not characterized by respect." of uh, morality and so on, I stopped the debate right there and I told them, you are disqualified unless you apologize and you are losing so many points for this. And then after um, the the debate, I spoke to the girl and I said, see, sometimes the government has to interfere (laughs) and regulate free speech. What would have happened if I hadn't interfered? I was going to burst into tears. I was so furious. <laughs> oh, but then, I think you must be a Republican because if you're speaking so much about restricting free speech, you've got to be a conservative. But well, I don't know. But they did, I, went, I went into help a liberal. So then the kids had a sh- um, shaking up, just as I was experiencing a shaking up of all my structures. So were they. And I found this is what has to happen and, and I'm working on it now. What, what if you didn't have to be an eccentric like I am to be able to do these things? What if we made it mainstream? I mean, we made it legal. So I'm working on a scheme to change the whole approach of what it means to have a high school diploma and, and to separate it from moving on to college. It's preparation for life. Mm. Because life, for most of our kids, is not going to have a job in it. They're going to be replaced by robotics. So then, the Gucci of teaching offers them, for example, the model of communal living. If you're not going to make enough money to buy your own house or your own apartment, or even to rent it, Well, you can do a kibbutz kind of experience. It's worked for the Israelis. And you do exactly, you learn how to respect a higher authority that you have created, and and you do physical work, but you do meditation and so on. And um, I believe we have a mission, our fourth way persuasion people and all spiritual traditions, that to do battle against what I call not positivism in the sense that you are presenting it, but we all know that this, this philosophy of the destiny of mankind is unlimited uh, material progress. Auguste and all those, and uh, that's it. And there is nothing other than, than, right. Uh, And, um, and what we have to give them is look, your destiny and your identity does not depend on how much money you make or what degrees you get or what job you get. That is only the result of a culture that has existed for 200 years, which is nothing in the history of mankind. And uh, we bring a wisdom that is thousands and thousands of years old that says every human being is worth, just because he is human, And he can work on himself to become free. And so then, uh, the Gujif teaching directly impacts on education because he calls it Osciano, if you remember, uh, using the the language of uh, Beelzebub. And he says that the evils of mankind are the result of automatic reasoning. And that that can only be changed if what we teach the young is objective being reasoning. But the only person who can teach it is someone who already has experienced it. And that doesn't mean someone who's been in a Gurdjieff group because he can have, I mean, you get the Federico Balsa of the third stage, then he's going to be good or approaching the third, you get the Federico Valsa of the first group, it's not going to, at the stage of my development, it's not going to mean anything uh, automatically. But then it, it can be someone who comes from Buddhism, or from Shamanism, or whatever, whatever it is. Curiously, I have found in Catholic schools particularly not very upmarket, but some upmarket also, Catholic schools that participated in debate programs, a better attitude, a, a greater openness, because the whole school is constructed on the basis of an ideal, of a transcendent ideal of man. One may agree with it or not agree with it, but it's different from a school that is built on only the worship of money.
1: Yes. which is what
2: they comes down to.
1: So I, I, I'm interested in your thought on the practical challenges of this program because to have people of recognized high being as the organizers of an educational system uh, presupposes a culture or a society that already places value on people of high being And that doesn't seem to be the political reality that uh, any of us live in.
2: No, but something that here coming from the periphery of the empire helps (laughs) us see that the empire, how was it? I'm not a Marxist in any way, shape, form, or manner, but Mao used to say imperialism is a paper tiger, if you remember your college days. And, And one sees it from here, that there are so many things that, can, can change as long as you coax the power possessors into realizing that it is in their interest to accept the change. So then, the Marxist approach is class war. We go against the power possessors, <coughs> that we're good guys. But there are other approaches, which are more Latino, if you wish, in which you say, "Look, okay, you're the rich guys. We're not going to take away your property, but." you're going to have to lose something in order not to lose it all. And we're your guarantee that there's not going to be a revolution. And so the approach is, and and because it's the truth, I mean, one thing that fellow intellectuals used to tell me is how, how is it that, that when I used to go into this, these conflictive schools, right. And how is it that the Trotsky guy, Trotsky uh, Youths don't hound you out of the school as a spy of the system and so on. One reason was that before I went in, I did a self-remembering exercise. And when I spoke to them, I spoke to them from my inner love for them. Hmm. Um, But I don't say this to my intellectual friends. I say because kids can recognize when you're speaking the truth. But it is also true. Um, but the truth is that we have a model for the 19th century, which was an education aiming at producing efficient industrial workers. Then we have an education of the 20th century. that was an education aimed at producing efficient producers and movers of, uh, of uh, goods and services and, co- and consumers. Now, that model has run out. We are in the 21st century, but we're still delivering an education of the 20th century. Now, what is a 21st century? <clears throat> On the one hand, it is the robotic century. Therefore, we need less and less people to do work. Less and less and less. So the whole concept of work is different. And the idea, the, the, well, Max Weber writes about the, the, the link between Protestantism and, and uh, capitalism and the origins of capitalism, of course. But the, this concept of work that we have is exclusive to our tiny little matchbox of a culture that we belong to. But it, uh, I mean, this is, I'm going to sidetrack again. Uh, as, I, as I always say, do not speak when I'm interrupting and do not <laughs> go to the main idea when I'm uh, rambling. I, was, uh, I had a student who was the CEO of, of a big oil company that was owned by his family. And he was also very committed to philanthropy and uh i i teach him in his office we do conversation and so on and so forth business english and one of the stories he told me was that they were sponsoring a community of native argentines it's weird we call them aboriginal people you call them native americans but it's what you you would call them native argentines i guess
0: yeah
2: um and um you <clears throat> know, we tried and we tried to help them. We even set up a business for them, for them to make uh, uh, crafts and so on. And then we had people from the church, Catholic Church, who owned a, a freight company bringing all their products to Buenos Aires all the way from the south. That's 1,500 kilometers of distance. And then we had in the most... Uh, upmarket shops in in the malls in Buenos Aires selling their products. Can you believe that they'd get started, they'd start making money, and at one point they'd say, okay, that's it, we got enough money for this year, and they just wouldn't continue working. They wanted to enjoy their lives. And this man, being so rich, he was at the office at 7 and left the office at 7 p.m., and, and, and he had bags under his eyes and was always worried, well-meaning person, but he
0: assumed
2: that our vision of what work is was the right one. And uh, he didn't realize that the Mapuches, that is the, the, the mm-hmm. people, um, they are near to Gurjith's philosophy, which is make, earn, earn your living with your left foot. But what I'm saying is then, we are now in a time. We cannot be teaching kids all the instructions required to be successful in the 20th century. This is the 21st century. So we've got to give them tools for uncharted territory. As it, when I, von Clausewitz wrote, in any war, there are three courses of action that an enemy may take. So that is why we have to study those three possible courses of action. But of course, the enemy always takes a fourth one. (laughs) And uh, our kids are being launched against an enemy that is going to take the fourth uh, one.
1: So so as you uh, are talking about an alternative educational system, one that uh, embodies some of the principles of the courage of tradition and the fourth way are
3: there other and, models and, and traditional aboriginal right. systems yes. as well
1: but I, I, I but i'm interested in in, in you, you mentioned your son was uh, uh, studying the montessori system so and
2: and and he's applying it yeah. for now with the kids who live in the, on the farm but they're opening to the community
1: So, so I'm curious if some of the alternative educational systems that already are present, like Waldorf or Montessori, are directionally or notionally more in alignment with what you are unpacking here.
2: Absolutely. I mean, my point is, how do we get? And I think I found it. How to do it? But I'll tell you in a couple of years. I'll keep you posted. Well, we we tend to meet, don't we? Mm -hmm. The thing is, how to transfer the essence of those methods into mainstream education. That is, uh, in Argentina, there are many uh, uh, programs, uh, usually run by evangelical groups, for rescuing kids from drug addiction, particularly low-income level kids from drug addiction, right? Because there are private clinics for the upmarket up market kids, but you never hear about them because it's kept hush-hush, but these. So what they do is they put them in a Gurdjieff retreat mode. They go to a farm, they do physical labor, they do meditation, um, they do uh, something similar to movements, the yoga and so on, and archery or whatever. And, uh, and then you see them on the trains selling the bake and pastry, the the um, bakings, the bread and pastries that they've made at the farm and so on.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, they stand up and proudly say, I used to be a drug addict and I'm out of a word of crime. But please buy my, my bread or so on. And what I'm saying is, why do we have to wait until we become addicted? Let's write it into the curriculum. Something that... People fail to see and that I learned in a human resources management manual that I use in my corporate the successful manager is not the one who has a dream team but he is the one who has a team that is made of many participants who are below average in in talent and he can collectively create something higher so then if all it takes is a minister of education or education secretary you call it whatever and to have a law that allows him to send the rule to all the the school authorities that there is no longer such a thing as a report card where you reflect um, uh, a number or a letter next to the kid's name. There is no longer a college transcript that is a high school transcript that is going to go to a college. That doesn't exist anymore. There's just a high school diploma. And on the report card, what you write is effort satisfactory or unsatisfactory. That's enough for the parents to keep track of what the kid is doing. And... Coupled with that, you have to do what all the upmarket schools do in Buenos Aires, which is you offer the kids international exams for the ones who want it. So then, or well, the ones whose parents want it. So then, you sit for IB exams or for Cambridge exams, or you take SITs. You could, but then the message you're sending all the kids is, we're here to prepare you for life. Yeah. So that all the time that is consumed in Cramming all the kids with information that they can hardly digest, and of which historically, if you look at the records historically, this doesn't change. You get about thirty percent of the kids with B plus or more. Those are the only ones who have profited from the lesson in terms of projected uh, college entrance, and the other seventy are constantly humiliated and said you 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 should you should do as well as as the brighter ones Uh, try harder and then they have these well-meaning campaigns not one child left behind and what's wrong with them nobody questions that maybe what's wrong is the actual paradigm the actual system that education is for university entrance but the lawmakers were all successful at college and the teachers or at least were successful at teachers' training college. So they are not able to see differently. They have what Woodchip says is automatic reasoning.
1: Well, it's also interesting that now the discourse even among um, uh, in the uh, current presidential race with the Democratic Party is a free college for everyone and in a way that that's kind of reifying the same the same picture of uh that huh? col- college is now being constructed as the uh success right and that right. uh that other things outside of college are are mm-hmm. <clears throat> not being uh, recognized as being equally valid
2: right so it's what i what i call sophisticated automatic reasoning that is if you just make it because it's very common in intellectual circles here that um, they say, well, we want everyone to have an opportunity. No, sorry, brother, you're not. You're giving an opportunity of pre-education to the top 30% of each class. And you're sending a message to the rest of the kids that to be normal is to be in that top 30%. Now, if you're not normal, what does that make you? Abnormal. That's the message. And they can't see it. They cannot see that they're doing it. And Gurdjieff says this. There's one part in the tales in which he describes two girls who commit suicide because of the frustration. Um, Many people overlook that passage, but I can send anyone who wants to. I can send them the quote. And uh, so he already foresaw this. And now we have Netflix, or recently we've had Netflix showing us about suicide, and you get kids who commit suicide. It's beginning to happen in Argentina also, because the pressures are becoming more globalized, and kids are receiving that message. And the teachers, not having any inner work on themselves, with good intentions, tell them, we want you to be someone in life. They use those words, we want you to be someone in life. Why don't you try hard? And deep down, they say, like I did. And now I'm a teacher. I may not be rich, but I've got job security and uh, prestige.
3: Well, thank you for bringing it back to that point, Federico, uh, because um, it seems to me that um, this um, discussion about education and how to how to change it arose out of your own. Uh, you, you described your life as having your your experience with the work as having these three phases, exactly. and if and if you will, a pre a, a pre a three fa- phase that is uh, you know your phase your, zero, your, <laughs> yes, phase <laughs> zero exactly. <laughs> so um, so a, and you didn't spend a lot of time describing it, but phase two as you were describing it, mm-hmm. uh, did include all these shocks that you kept experiencing exactly. From, from, exactly. From, from time to time. And what I'm wondering is if some of, our, some of our listeners may not entirely grasp just exactly what you mean by that. So I'm wondering if you can just give them, just briefly, a little flavor of what that was like. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, oh, oh,
2: uh, okay. Um. I, um, and when I was on the first phase, I would try to go to as many retreats as possible, but it was all part of a strategy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: In the second phase, um, I would explain to the group leader, look, I'm not going to make it this, uh, this uh, next retreat. I can't make it. Because, you see, uh, I've got to take care of my job. I mean, no one wants to be unemployed, blah. And he would say, you are identified with your image of yourself as the perfect teacher. And as the star debate coach, what you are doing, the hysteria that you are Uh, exhibiting is repulsive to me you are a disgrace to the man you, you could be all this shouting I mean shouting at you furious aren't you ashamed of your children seeing you totally enslaved to something that in theory you know you don't want for yourself or for them and so at that moment additionally to the to the direct emotional clash what causes the greatest humiliation and shame to the ego is when they tell you something that you know is true and you had fondly believed that nobody knew Right. <laughs> I thought I had them all too. I thought I was the con artist. I thought I could have my cake and eat it. I thought I could be the perfect...
3: perfect successful successful phony. Speaker,
2: <laughs> and at the same time, uh, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to be able to say I was in a spiritual s- search. And so then... Um, and that in front of my two sons in an in in evening of vodka... And my wife, right? But it hurt more to be humiliated in front of my own sons. That was agony. I wanted to leave. I hated the guy's guts, but I couldn't because looking back, I said, for the last five years, if I hadn't walked through this fire, I'd be an absolute idiot. I mean, I'm less of an idiot now. I'm still an idiot, but I'm less, and I want still less That is, I had this feeling that there is, that layers upon layers were being pulled off of my conditioning. And that I was getting nearer to my true self. That I was becoming less of a phony. But how do you do that? How do you shock a person without shocking them? I mean, I have to thank this man. And... uh, and all the negativity he absorbed, maybe that's what killed him at, at such uh, an early age. Maybe I was part of the negativity that that uh, fed his cancer, who knows? And uh, one thing about the Gujif method is that there is no devotional component to it. Gujif himself had deliberate strategies to show that he was not an object of devotion. No. And some people use that aspect of him to say, well, that he was my good, and so on. But, well, of course, it's, I respect uh, other ways that, that do work on devotion devotion or saintliness or whatever. That's fine. Not for my profile of person, right? <laughs> well, me, well but good.
3: also, sh- surely you have found devotion that certainly you've been ex- expressing, it seems to me, um, to something higher.
1: Devotion you, you, to the work, absolutely,
3: and, and that have, and that devotion is uh, something that obviously, I would say, your sons could yeah. could um, find incredibly validating to their to the demonstration you could give them, yeah. and that's and that's uh, that's part of the picture too. Absolutely. So it's not it's not devotion to to an individual, right. But something higher
1: well
2: plus, plus they brought in their wives <laughs>
1: uh, well the, the actually that the dinner you're describing where the the group leader uh called you out for your identification in front of your family is itself you know the the small eye is humiliated, and yet the demonstration for uh your sons, for instance, of receiving that
0: right.
1: and being able to take that energy and use it is a, a tremendous, a profound demonstration.
2: Well, years later, after the incident, both of them in different ways have told me that they incredibly valued my able to remain there, not get up and leave
0: mm-hmm. like a
2: cry baby, and uh, not to punish myself and the, the following day, continue with my duties and the in the um,
3: in well, okay. and
2: so on oh,
3: okay, but that, that point you just made not to punish yourself as well exactly. that that is a key, that is a key element it seems to me
0: yes.
3: in any uh, spiritual tradition that includes the the provision of the kind of shock that you just described
0: mm-hmm.
3: because if you can't um if you don't have that, that capacity to create a context in yourself to allow that shock to be absorbed and received, then um, uh, you will be buffeted yes, about.
2: Absolutely. Well, that is a fine line that not all group leaders manage <clears throat> to understand or that manage to remember at all times.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But one of the principles of the work is you only give a person what that person is ready to receive. You don't give him more than what he can receive. Right. And uh, first, you train him to introduce a witness that can observe his own ego to the point where he can see the physical symptoms of humiliation to the ego and the ego trying to convince him that you are being humiliated Mm -hmm. which gives me a flashback to um, Victor Franco when he Mm. writes about his experiences in the extermination camp and at one point when he was being uh, he was being uh, tortured by a, a bunch of Nazis and he, at one point, he realized that he was the only free man in that room. If you remember that part, I, I can't, uh, I can't remember that scene without uh, being uh, having lump in my throat, because, because he 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 clearly experienced that he was not his body. And. Clearly not his ego, because ego is identification of the with the body in a sense. So then one wants that for oneself, and, yeah. and um, I don't know. Then another, and I don't know if this, if you, if you, I can give another less uh, dramatic example of. Um, of this transformation, you're in the staff room. You're a teacher, right? You're in the mm-hmm. staff room. And your boss makes a joke. Clearly, your boss makes a joke. At least you smile. You <laughs> Minimum, you smile. But I would say anyone makes a joke, even if you find it's not funny. Out of courtesy, you smile, or right? Mm-hmm. But the agony, the humiliation of hearing yourself laughing extra hard that that little five grams that transforms genuine laughter into phony laughter
3: ah mm. uh, that's a wonderful example it is that's
1: one that most everyone listening to this can probably relate to yeah yeah
2: and i would tell you something i would almost assert that that one, the one of catching yourself and then going to a group meeting and describing it. And then next week it happens again. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And then they explain to you, but it's not about changing. You have to, this is about conscious labor and intentional suffering. And what, what, Intentional suffering is not. Oh, I'm going to lift this box, even though it's too. too. We all do that. Or oh, I'm going to. No, I'm not going to have dessert. I would like to, but I'm not. I'm going to give the bigger piece of cake to the other person on the on the table. Or, oh, I'm going to volunteer to do the dishes, although I hate it. Yeah, we all say that.
0: But intentional
2: suffering is remaining there, seeing yourself and. Yes, it's true that at a deeper level, you say, this is not me, I'm observing it, and sooner or later, this is not going to be part of me. But at the moment they're operating and they're taking out the, the cyst or the whatever it is that you've got, it hurts. man. this is uh, it's not for people with a heart condition.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> or maybe it is it exactly is. and precisely for people with yeah, a yeah, heart I condition.
2: Yeah, I get your drift.
3: <laughs> so uh,
1: but then,
2: sorry, but, but uh, the parallel between my spiritual torture and my power to face the world, 1993, which I would say is the year when I start suffering. Well, that year, <clears throat> I decided I was going to. Uh, initiate and direct the first model United Nations program in Argentina. Mm. And with absolutely nothing to back me, I went to the United Nations Information Center and said, I will do a model United Nations in Spanish for public schools, state schools, right? Then I went to the American school and said, look, I represent the United Nations. So then if you want to be in this, I will uh, offer this school as the venue. Yes, please do it. Then I went to two elite public schools with uh, uh, very bright uh, students. I said, look, I went to the first one and said, I'm going to train kids from the other school. for something that's never happened in Argentina. I'm going to train them to be judges in a moral United Nations program. And so on. And so then I played one against the other. I I sold them the American canary.
0: <laughs> if you
2: remember, for those who are not familiar with the with the tales, there's one part in the tales in which Ujif shows how he gathered funds. He and his friends gathered funds to do their expeditions to search for the the roots of uh, of ancient wisdom. So what they do is they catch some uh, common birds. I forget. what what words they were and they dye them yellow to look like canaries and they sell them it's in the movie meetings with man. also it says American canary that is one thing that Gurdjieff does is you find yourself daring to do things that the one you called yourself would never have even dreamt of doing and it worked we had 300 kids doing it from uh, 13 provinces wonderful uh, I cannot I I cannot prove the direct connection between being with in such raw suffering condition and the energies that were liberated to be able to generate something out of nothing everyone thought I was someone that represented some but who's behind you there's no one behind me I should have said Gujif is behind me
1: (laughs) (laughs) well Hey we we are uh, getting uh, very close to our, our time time here. Uh so uh, Oh, I per, was
0: just getting, getting uh, yeah, warmed up.
1: I, n- uh, I understand. Well, this will have to be uh, a <laughs> uh, phase one of uh, many phases. But right. uh, well,
2: that's an Argentine. An Argentine with a mate is a recipe for disaster.
1: Well, as, <laughs> as, 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 have a mate. As <laughs> as is usually the case these these conversations tend to fly by and okay. uh, but uh
3: but We'd we can we can look forward to the next one.
1: Yeah. Okay. But but we appreciate the time. I really appreciate the elaboration of uh, your story and how the work weaved weaved its way through, throughout your life. It, it, well, I've uh, done my
2: best to to show that an ordinary man with no special gift has never been a group leader, never written a book and who has the honor of having remained in the B group of movements for 34 years. I mean, uh, that is something.
1: (laughs) Once an intellectual, always an intellectual.
2: (laughs) Finally understand it, right? I mean, so many years of humiliation, watching people in the A group and being able to be at the exhibition and you back in the B group and so on. Uh, So well. But I guess you don't value, as you mentioned, right? Social validation, so I have to accept that <laughs> maybe it's true.
3: Well, if we, if we uh, value ourselves by virtue of our social validation, then we're just in that mechanical place that you were speaking of.
2: Ah, what a fitting conclusion.
1: Indeed, well, uh, Federica, thank you. Thank you so much for joining it's us. Been, it's That's been,
2: been lovely, lovely. Same here, thank you very much.
1: You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we've been playing a Zoom conversation recorded on August 18, 2019 with longtime 4th Way practitioner Federico Balsa. Federico Balsa is a retired Argentine high school teacher who has been a sincere and persistent practitioner for over 30 years. He is a founding member of the Seekers Cafe website. Next week on the show, Rob Schmidt and I will speak by telephone with Mark Matusek, author of the recent book, Mother of the Unseen World, The Mystery of Mother Mira. He is the author of two acclaimed memoirs, Sex, Death, Enlightenment, and The Boy He Left Behind, as well as When You're Following Dive, Lessons in the Art of Living, and Ethical Wisdom, The Search for a Moral Life. A former editor at Interview Magazine, he is a featured blogger for psychologytoday.com and HuffPost, and has contributed to The New Yorker, Oh The Oprah Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, Yoga Journal, Tricycle, The Buddhist Review, and The Saturday Evening Post, among other publications. Internationally, he offers courses in creativity and spiritual growth based on his book, Writing to Awaken, A Journey of Truth, Transformation, and Self-Discovery. He is a founding member of V-Men, an organization devoted to ending violence against women and girls, and lives in East Hampton, New York. Tune in for that show on Saturday, September 14th from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, at the Thursdays at Many Rivers event in Sebastopol, we resume after our summer hiatus on the 12th with SHIFT, the Art of Transforming Limitations, that's with Nick Egan, Ph.D., speaker, author, leader, and recent guest on The Mystical Positivist. Again, that's Thursday, September 12th at 7.30 p.m., Minnie Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Nick Egan will speak about his recently released book, Shift. In Shift, Nick shows how to improve organizational leadership and personal and professional development, by dismantling mental limitations and reclaiming freedom and flexibility. Combining studies in psychology and Buddhist philosophy, he demonstrates how to deconstruct stories to open paths to progress, understand interconnectivity to expand potential, reframe difficulties as opportunities, eliminate useless ideas to embrace positive solutions, reduce addiction to urgency to increase productivity, Practice patience to avoid frustration, and achieve a flow state to transform your experience. Filled with practical exercises and invaluable advice, SHIFT can help anyone meet challenges effortlessly, develop positive lifelong habits, and create a world of limitless possibility. Nick Egan, Ph.D., is a sought-after speaker who encourages organizational and personal growth utilizing his understanding of positive psychology and Buddhist philosophy. He's also the author of Shift, The Art of Transforming Limitations, in which he details how to improve organizational leadership and personal and professional development by dismantling mental limitations, reclaiming freedom, flexibility, and success. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.